We are not going to be in 1 Peter this morning, even though that's what the bulletin says. I apologize for that. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can find the first book of the New Testament. There are 66 books in the Bible, 27 in the New. So that probably would have you in what, the 40th chapter of the Bible, book of the Bible? I'm, I have to confess to you, I'm a bit of a, of a Scrooge when it comes to not Christmas. I love Christmas. We're planning our Christmas Day um, menu and what we're going to do and all that sort of thing. I love Christmas. I love getting together with family and sharing gifts and, and days off and all of those great things. So I'm a huge Christmas fan. Um, but when it comes to preaching, I'm a bit of a Scrooge because... There's a lot in the Bible we need to cover, and so are we going to do Christmas sermons and Easter sermons and Father's Day sermons and Mother's Day sermons and spring solstice sermons? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. There's 66 books, and so we would never get anything done. So usually it's like the week before, which would be next week, I'd preach some kind of Christmas sermon to make some of you happy, and so you won't leave the church because I actually like Christmas. And, um, <laughs> So we're going to go a week early this week, according to God's providence. So we're going to be in Matthew 1 this week and next week. Um, but my confession to you is I wanted to do 1 Peter. I worked hard at 1 Peter. And then finally on Thursday I had to push the eject button. Um, when you read things in commentaries that say things like, this verse uh, has legitimately 180 different interpretive options. Go on. No thanks. So, uh, having preached about 1,500 sermons in my life, I thought, I'll preach a Christmas sermon and make certain people happy. So, and maybe others not so much. So, we are going to look at the great genealogy in Matthew 1, and then next Sunday we'll move into the intent and purpose behind it. Uh, I think we'll be encouraged and it will be helpful whether or not this is Christmas time or not. Uh, the first time I've preached through this text, it wasn't Christmas time. Uh, it has everything to do with Christ and what makes him the great Savior that he is. Uh, we need him to be of a certain lineage. And this morning we're going to see that he is, he is of that great lineage. And then next time we'll hear things like he came to save his people from their sins. He is virgin born uh, and, and get into the reasons as to why. So if you're a note taker this morning, uh, I'm going to be following, uh, I'm calling them six must-see sights when it comes to this Everest of a biography or a genealogy. So six must-see sites as we work through the first 18 or so verses. So let's begin site number one in the genealogy. Jesus is the new Genesis. He is the new origin. He is the new beginning, the new Genesis. We see this in chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel account. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Some of your translations might say the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's origin talk. That's uh, creation talk. Even though it might not sound like it in English, uh, that particular phrase is used two different times in Genesis, and both times it has to do with creation. It has to do with beginnings. It's used of Adam, and it's also uh, used of the creation of the earth. 
And so when we read in Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he's using creation terminology. That's why I'm saying he is the new Genesis Jesus is. So as the human race was led into sin by the first Adam, uh, we have the last Adam, as Paul calls him, uh, Jesus Christ, since there are ultimately only two. He's the new beginning. Uh, he's the, the one who starts the new creation, if you will. And that's what makes him so significant to you and to me. We need a new beginning. We need a new heart because of sin. Uh, we have a new covenant, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have the new birth, John chapter 3 or 1 Peter chapter 1. We have all of this need for newness. We have new life in Christ. And so I love it that he picks up on that verbiage. Uh, even though us English readers might not pick up on it so readily, he's the start over. He's the new beginning. He's the new creator. He's the one that can bring you restoration and forgiveness of sins. And so he begins on that good, appropriate, kind of high note of things. He's our genuine hope. Then we come to a second sight when, we, and when it comes to this uh, genealogy. Number two, Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. He's the long-expected King. The long-expected Messiah. And we also have this in verse 1. The book of G the genealogy of Jesus... Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Some translations translate it Jesus the Messiah. Some translate it Jesus the Christ. And for fitting reason, it's because they mean the same thing. And lots of you who have been Christians for long enough to know Jesus Christ means Jesus Messiah, but lots of you don't know that. Okay? Sometimes we think that was his first and last name. Uh, through Jesus' life, he was never referred to as Jesus Christ. His brothers and sisters didn't say, well, this is my brother, Jesus Christ. Now, he was Jesus of what? Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus son of Joseph. And it's only with selective uh, usage that the gospel writers, it's infrequent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah, it means anointed one. It means special designated royalty, king. And then when we move out of the gospel accounts, he's referred to as Jesus Christ a lot because it's theological. He's Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, old, borrowing from the Old Testament, using Messiah terminology a lot. Okay, That's why Matthew uses Old Testament imagery hundreds of times because he wants to connect the dots. The Old Testament was anticipating an ultimate king. An ultimate, and think in terms of these, kings, messiahs in the Old Testament were not only supposed to rule, they were to make provision for their people. They were good kings. They were to protect their people. They were to, uh, when they were in danger, they were to deliver their people. So it's a loaded kind of title. Jesus is the deliverer, savior, protector, provider, king. That's who he is. Jesus Christ, Jesus, Messiah, is who he is. And Matthew's making sure to highlight that that is who we're talking about here. The long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah, Deliverer, King. In the Old Testament, there were many Messiahs in the Old Testament. We might call them lowercase m Messiahs. 
prefiguring, anticipating. The high priest was a Messiah, Leviticus chapter 21. David is the king of Israel, Messiah, 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, there's one who's greater than David who will be Messiah. So he's going to be like David, but he's going to rule and reign forever, so he's not like David because David's going to die according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 talks about this kingdom which will not be destroyed. It will last forever and ever. Psalm chapter 2 is a great one because it's a a messianic psalm uh, where he is anointed by God and he will rule the nations and he will rule the nations forever. And then in the New Testament, like in the book of Acts, it refers to that as being Jesus. The Apostle Paul does also. So... Matthew is doing a great job in giving the genealogy, even though we're only in verse 1. I know, we'll get there. Jesus Christ, the one we've been waiting for, the one the Old Old Testament anticipated, the one in anticipation in the old we find fulfillment in the new. He is the one. That's why, why the Apostle Paul calls him the King of Kings. He's Messiah of Messiahs. He's the one that all of the types and shadows were anticipating and the substance belongs to Christ, Messiah, King, Deliverer, Savior, Provider One. Huge, huge, huge claims. You remember when the Apostle Peter uh, and and Jesus says to the Apostle Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, well, here's who so-and-so says you are and here's who so-and-so says you are. Yeah, but who do you say that I am, Peter? And he says, you are the what? You're the Christ. You're the one. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one and only one who, according to the Old Testament's rule and reign will last forever. Your kingdom will have no end. The ultimate Messiah, greater than all of the other Messiahs. It provides, if you want a a more fancy term, Matthew's showing that Jesus gives us... um, continuity, continuation, um, togetherness. Uh, In many ways, Christ is not a New Testament word. It's an Old Testament word. In fact, the Greek... Hang with me. I know it's not noon yet, but think with me here. This isn't that complicated. The Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what most of the apostles would have read, even, the Greek version of the Old Testament would have said, where it's the Hebrew word Mashiach, it would read Christus, Christ. So it's not like in the Old Testament he's Messiah, in the New Testament he's Christ. That's a redundancy. We're just dealing with different languages. Jesus is that one. David was a Christ. Let me put it in those terms. Lowercase c. Jesus is the Christ. Those Levitical priests were Christ's. Lowercase c. Jesus is the Christ. So in so many ways, I hate to call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe it's the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. Matthew's connecting the dots. He's writing to a Jewish audience to say, He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. It's Jesus. The Christ. It's exciting. It should be exciting. It's exciting to me because I want an ultimate, forever ruling, reigning, providing, protecting, deliverer king. 
Not one who just shows up and says that's what he is, but in the genealogy, he's going to connect the dots to show that he actually is the legitimate one. He is the rightful heir to the throne. With me so far? Okay. No bah humbug. No bah humbug. <laughs> Let's move on now to a third sight as we look at this. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. We find that also in verse 1. I promise we'll get past verse 1 here just momentarily. But in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Jesus delivering, providing King Christ, the son of David. He needs to be that to be the deliverer. But now we have the son of Abraham. He's also the son of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jews in the Old Testament. Abraham is the one, according to Genesis chapter 12, was given a great promise by God, not because he was great, but because, because God is great. And in you, Abraham, Abram if you'd prefer, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This huge promise that traces itself throughout the Old Testament and then throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul loves it in Romans and loves it in Galatians. Through Abraham, the entire world is going to be blessed. Blessed in particular with salvation. That you'll be justified by faith. Abraham is the father of faith because he believed God and God credited it to him as as if he were righteous, even though he he himself wasn't. And so the big deal for having Jesus as the son of Abraham, he is the son of Abraham, and if we believe in Jesus, we're united to him by faith. We're inheritors. It's ours. We belong. The, 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 the huge, amazing, extraordinary promise is ours in Christ. You might not know it, but your greatest need in all of life is to be forgiven of your sins and to be declared by God to be a perfect person. That's your greatest need. You might think your greatest need is a bigger house or better health or whatever it might be. Some of those things are important things, but I know that I know that I know that I know your greatest need and my greatest need, even though we sadly are so indifferent to it, your greatest need is to be forgiven of your trespasses, your your violations of God's holy law, and to then not only that be seen by God as if you're a perfect obeyer of His law. You need to be justified. That's what that means. Jesus, as the ultimate son of Abraham, from the the offspring there, Jesus as that one who is the righteous, who is the perfect one, if we believe in him, if we trust in him, your greatest need is met. It is fulfilled in Jesus, the son of Abraham. It's so interesting in Galatians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says, and to your offspring, uh, singular, who is Christ. All of this balled together and rolled up, culminating high point. It's not in your offsprings. It is true. He says we're children of Abraham, but it's actually better than children of Abraham. Ultimately, the offspring of Abraham is Christ. He's the one. And so I would encourage you when you read Matthew 1, 1, to take into account the way the Apostle Paul says he's the offspring 
ultimate fulfillment. And the reason we could be children of Abraham, by the way, is because of the offspring were united to him by faith. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the ultimate one. And we're blessed. We're justified in Christ the righteous, the justified one, because of his perfection. So when we think about Jesus, and I know we're talking about his birth, but I always point to the cross. (laughs) He was born to die. But when we think about Jesus coming here, and we think about he's the son of Abraham, it doesn't seem that good. It's interesting. But the more you read the Older Testament and you consider this promise made to Abraham, and you consider the offspring of Abraham and being children of Abraham, and then it's even better than that. There is the offspring who does everything right on behalf of everyone who would ever trust in him. You start having the internal hallelujah chorus kind of building up inside of you, and you say, yes, yeah. He's my Savior. I love to consider the fact that He came here for me, as we will read later, to save His people from their sins. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the one. He's everything. It's exciting stuff. It's great stuff. It's why history has been changed. Our confidence is in Him. It's of colossal significance. The Son of Abraham. Now, the fourth sight we're going to see is the fact that he's the legitimate heir to the throne. He is the legitimate heir to the throne. And now we're going to read the genealogy of great significance. Um, The older people tend to get, the more they think their genealogy is important. True? I think so. I never cared at all about who was related to who was related to who was related to. But I'd pay a lot of money for five minutes with my grandparents to ask them, you know. I get out their old Bibles now, and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that person, and, you know. Before you know it, you're thinking about signing up for 23andMe and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Unless you're one of those conspiracy theorists. If I, if I give them a swab of my saliva, they might put me in a camp or something. Anyway, never mind. This is It's true. It's true. There are some people in this room, no doubt, who would want to, don't, not want to do it. I might be one of them. But lineage. I would only find out that I'm just related to a bunch of grouchy Germans. Abendroth, right? I don't need to know that. You may like things, stinky foods like sauerkraut. I mean, what, what are they going to tell me that I don't already know? So, joking aside... Genealogies are important. Genealogies are really important if we're talking about the one who's going to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, who would come to save his people from their sins. And so we're going to read it rather quickly. I would like you to take note of people you recognize. And some of you who are newer to the Bible won't recognize very many of them at all. Others of you will all say, oh, you know, that, Josiah, he was a good king. Um, he's my son too. Um, but anyway, you look, at least look for people you've heard of and you know and, and who are the good people in the Bible, quote-unquote, who are the bad people in the Bible. Let's give it a shot. Abraham, verse 2, the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. 
and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Breath. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel is the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abed, and Abed the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And I drew an arrow where it says Christ and wrote chapter 1, verse 1, because he goes right back to there. Christ is in this line. Messiah, ultimate deliverer, king, is in this line. Then verse 17 offers like a threefold kind of summary division of Israel's history. 17, first of all, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Next, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. Next, and from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, to the Deliverer, Provider, Savior, Messiah, Christ, 14 generations. With historic precedent, he doesn't give every detail. And that's precedented outside of the Bible. He gives the important ones, the significant ones to make sure we understand that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. We're not playing games here. He's not some weird guy from who knows whereville. Legitimate heir to the throne. He's the one. He's the one. Number five, a fifth sight you don't want to miss when it comes to the genealogy. Jesus came for sinners. Don't miss that Jesus came for sinners. If I were inventing a religion, God help us if that were happening, um, I wouldn't have a genealogy like this. I kind of want to suggest to you that no one in their right mind would have a genealogy like this. I mean, I, I would probably make up names. People that don't really exist. I might say, well, they're from other planets. So you can't investigate and know. Or something like that. Sound familiar? Other religions have done this. I, 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 I wouldn't pick the people he picks here. I might have picked some of them. 
But if I'm really thinking, I wouldn't pick, I wouldn't pick these people. Again, I love the fact that the Bible, with the Bible, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. You wouldn't, let me say, you wouldn't make this stuff up. It just tells you what's true to the point where Christians have to do some explaining. Say, well, these aren't, there's some people in here that aren't good people. And if they're not good people, then Jesus is related to people who aren't good people. That's right, he is. Now, we have answers to that, and they're important answers. We're going to get to those next Sunday. Because he's, is he related to these people? Is Jesus related to these people in his genealogy? Some of you are doing this. That's like the cheater. I used to take those tests too. Is it a T or an F? You know? He's definitely related to these people. And he's definitely not related to these people. And both can be true at the same time. He's related to these people in a certain way. And he's not related to these people in a different way. But you wouldn't make this stuff up. You wouldn't put these kind of people on here. Jesus came for sinners. Every single person on the list is a first-rate sinner, a violator of God's law. And yet in Matthew one twenty-one, he came to save his people from their sins. I love that passage, by the way, because I'm a big sinner. But I love that passage because we typically think, oh, yeah, he came to save us. But he came to save the people on that list, even. Those are his people. He's come from them. Even the fact that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, that could have never happened if it weren't for the anticipatory, to use a big word, right? Coming of of Jesus, doing what he did when he was here on earth. He came to save his people from their sins, Psalm 14, everyone on that list is a sinner. Psalm 143, verse 2, In your sight, God, no human being is uh, living is righteous. We all need redemption. We all need savings. Let's just take a, a, just a, a, a quick look. I almost said gander, but I've never said gander before in my life. I think I learned that word from cartoons or something. That's what, uh, what was that guy, the big rooster's name? Froghorn Leghorn? Was that who that was? Oh, sorry. Anyway. Let's take a gander <laughs> at some of the skeletons. Abraham lied in Genesis chapter 20. Um, I mean, he, he lied so much he, for all intents and purposes, wanted to prostitute his own wife committed adultery, Genesis chapter 16. How about David? David committed adultery, 2 Samuel 11, uh, was deceived, got drunk, David murdered. How about women in the genealogy? If I were putting women in the genealogy, I'd put Sarah maybe, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Instead, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba of all people. You're going to put Gentiles in there? Tamar fornicated via incest, Genesis 38. Rahab the prostitute, Joshua 2. Ruth, a Gentile Moabite. Bathsheba, adulterer who had an affair with David, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Right? Kind of going, what in the, what are we, what in the world? Even Mary in Luke chapter 1 is going to refer to Jesus as her Savior. She's a sinner on the list too, as sweet as she might have been and honorable as she might have been. 
Wow. One Bible teacher said this, Thus, on the first page of the gospel of Jesus is presented as connected with a race which nevertheless could not produce him. But I like it that those people are on the list because Jesus didn't come for good people. His people aren't good people. He came to save his people from their sins. It's good. It's important. Make sure you remember that when you try to tell other people that you love about who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he accomplished. Because sometimes we as Christians who want to live Christ-honoring lives, we want to live good lives, come across the wrong way and we don't talk the right way about Jesus, our Savior, and we sound like we're the people who are good people who belong to the good Savior. And actually, the people who belong to the good Savior are bad people who belong to Him by faith. And faith means trust. Faith doesn't mean faithfulness. But your friends and family members sometimes think that that's actually what even faith means. Faith is resting, trusting in another. Jesus came to save not the faithful. Jesus came to save sinners who would trust in Him, have faith in Him. I'm thankful for all these people on this list because they look like us kind of people. Number six, finally, and we'll wrap things up, a final sight to notice and be impressed with. Jesus was unique from sinners. In verse 16, if you look there with me, there is a shift in the verbiage. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the son of Mary, comma, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Even our English translations pick up on the... We're going to say it a little bit different here because of what's going to be said. Because there is uniqueness and difference. He's related, but he's not altogether related. And we are going to see next time, chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. Ah, see, uniqueness. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then in 23, I keep referencing it, I'll do it again, behold the virgin, oh, that tells us something. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Is Jesus one of us? Yes, and you need him to be one of us. And in most recent, the last 25 or so years in Christianity, uh, we, we've kind of forgotten about the significance of the humanity of Jesus. And as I like to say, He needs to be human. You need Him to be human because you're human. And He can't be your Savior unless He's one of us. So we're, we're recovering that. And I'm thankful that we're a part of helping to recover the significance of His humanness. These are His people. Okay? We are His people. He's one of us. I mentioned last week, He's referred to by the author of Hebrews as our elder brother, okay? who always does the right thing so that we're accepted. But we have to also remember, He's not one of us. Because He's come from above. Unique, preserved, 
special, extraordinary, the eternal one who has become one of us. We need him to be both human being and divine at the same time if he is going to be what John will call him, the savior of the world. Okay, And so we're going to talk more about that next time. But both are vital and essential, and I hope it helps you to appreciate him more, not just for December 25th, but for your redemption all the time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, our time together in your word. Thank you that you call churches and pastors um, to preach the word. And we're thankful today to be preaching the Word, to be preaching Christ, the living Word, from the text of your Word. And we're grateful to be able to be a part of that, and we're thankful to hear your Word. Our response is gratitude, and our response is praise, and our response is trust. Our response is wanting to tell other people about what it means to be forgiven of sins. Encourage us, give us opportunities, uh, number one, to rest in Christ, our Savior, and have assurance in Him, but also to tell others of the great rest that we have found. Bless our day, in Jesus' name, amen.